Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 19th. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss why any spread widening in September or October should be viewed as an important buying opportunity, as we expect credit spreads to hit historical lows in the current credit cycle in the next year. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, our last episode last week focused a lot on SOFR and, and some details around the SOFR LIBOR transition. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've given an update on our views on the market. And I think part of the reason for that is the market really hasn't been too exciting these past couple of weeks. Yeah, you're right. It's been a lot of the same with spreads generally trading, maybe modestly narrower largely directionless trading as we've seen for a lot of the summer. But there has been an interesting development over the past four sessions. We've seen spreads trade wider each day. And it's the first time we've seen that since the middle of May. And to your point, spreads have now sort of hit this plateau, you know, really the third plateau we've had since the March peak, where spreads sort of trade in a tight range without really much of a direction. And maybe spread stalling here isn't super surprising, given that from an absolute basis, credit spreads aren't much above where they were before the pandemic started. So we've seen a bit of a give back. And actually, over the past week or so, we've given back most of the narrowing over the past month. So we closed at 132 basis points on the IG index spread on July 20th. We're above 130 basis points now. So it feels like we're in another one of these plateaus as we wait to see which direction the market will break out of the channel too. It's worth noting that the two previous plateaus broke to the narrower side. So as we try to figure out which way we're going to go this time, Maybe it's worth discussing, Dan, what do you think has driven some of this sort of malaise in credit markets in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a definitive catalyst here. I think you could point to a couple different things. Two of the main reasons that I would look at here are first, the absence of a fiscal stimulus bill at this point is certainly surprising to us. We definitely assumed that there would be some sort of agreement by the time that Congress recessed a couple of weeks ago. Of course, we don't have anything yet. Will something get done in the next couple of weeks? It seems possible, if not likely. But the fact that we don't have anything yet should certainly be viewed as a downside surprise. The second factor that is at least in some part responsible for this weakness in spreads is the return of supply. We had pretty light supply over the month of July. That has changed as we've moved into August. August, through just the first 18 days, has set a record for supply in the month. Just as of yesterday, we now have the heaviest month of supply in any August on record, and there's still eight more trading sessions to go. So I think that has probably exacerbated a little bit of the weakness. And we've seen in past episodes of heavy stretches of supply that after a while, the market can grow a little bit fatigued with all of the new issuance. So I would point to those two factors as being somewhat responsible. Do you see any others? Well, and I think importantly, those two factors that you talked about sort of challenged some market assumptions that we were sort of operating under. Obviously, the stimulus one is clear. Everyone was pretty sure we were going to have stimulus. 
It hasn't come. It may not come. And it's a real question whether or not some of these businesses can survive without either more assistance from the government or without earnings coming from consumers that are spending stimulus checks. And then secondly, in terms of supply, I think that after the sort of light July that we had, there was maybe this perception that corporations had raised the money that they needed and maybe to some extent had weathered the storm. Obviously, that's not true in totality. There are going to be winners and losers from this. That's more clear than anything through the virus so far. But from an index level, maybe there had been this sort of raise and now we are going to be through it. And the heavy August supply challenges that. Despite all the issuance, cash ratios of corporations are still very high, but it's clear that those corporations want to maintain a high cash balance given such a high degree of uncertainty going forward. So I agree with you that those are the two main factors. Then you add in the sort of omnipresent threats of the virus and a potential second wave and renewed lockdown, as well as the November elections that could weigh on spreads. And you've got a bit of a bleaker outlook here in the past week. I would also add that I think that the thin liquidity conditions of August, a lot of vacations, a lot of people away, certainly hasn't helped. And I don't think that's going to change in the next week or two until we get to September. At that point, when everyone's back in their chairs, we'll see which way the market goes. I just add that with the potential exception of a fiscal stimulus package that may or may not come, it certainly doesn't seem like any of these factors that we just discussed are going to get much better. From the virus standpoint, you obviously have this risk of a second wave. As the more temperate climates in the Northern Hemisphere move towards winter, I mean, it may not be shocking that some of the areas that have had a very difficult time over the past few months, particularly in the United States, Florida, Arizona, the very hot states where you actually might be inside more often because it's 90, 100 plus degrees, and while the rest of the country is outside where the virus doesn't spread as much, you're inside in the air conditioning where you, you could see more spread. So as the majority of the country moves back towards being inside more frequently, there's obviously this well-perceived risk of a second wave, potential lockdown. And now we don't have the bridge of fiscal stimulus, at least yet, to get us to the other side. And the one thing I would add there, Dan, is it should be viewed as at least concerning for the prospect of continued economic growth as we move into fall months that we've seen a number of universities have a sort of last minute reversal in terms of moving to online curriculum as the fall semester began and infection rates on campuses really, really picked up. So just to your point about the fall weather, I think there's very valid reason to be concerned. And if we did see a second wave of shutdowns and, and lockdowns, it seems fair to assume we would see some amount of spread weakness. And I think that should be viewed, as we've talked about, as a buying opportunity because ultimately the potential for spreads to widen is somewhat limited given the Fed facilities in place and the other stimulus measures that we would see ramped back up. And yeah, we've been fairly consistent with the expectation that spreads would struggle to punch through pre-pandemic levels still given heightened uncertainty surrounding the virus stimulus and all that. And that's what we've seen play out. So in the near term, yes, I could easily see some widening just given a higher degree of uncertainty surrounding some of these risk factors. But like you said, long-term, I think we have to view that as a very important buying opportunity because you can't just look at spreads as you know, absolute levels to treasuries. There's also a percentage pickup. And treasuries have fallen so much that credit spreads as a percentage of treasuries are still at elevated levels. So if we look at corporate yields as a percentage of treasury yields, current ratios of corporate yields are about 2.3 standard deviations wide of their long-term averages going back to about 2,000. And while this shouldn't be viewed as you know an indiscriminate buy signal, it does imply at least a modicum of attractiveness in corporate debt. When you think about an investor deciding between, say, a 10-year treasury and a 10-year corporate bond, 
the say 70 basis points that you'll pick up with a 10-year treasury compared to a 10-year corporate bond yielding on average, say 2%, that's a pickup of three times as much yield moving out the credit spectrum into corporates. So I think there's some rationale to think that that's an appropriate metric to look at when weighing the relative value proposition between products. I think that's especially true just given what we've seen from the Fed and their attempts to keep bankruptcies as low as possible. I mean, we're already talking about pretty high credit quality investments already in terms of investment grade corporate bonds. And that's all the more true if we're going to have a Fed that sort of rides to the rescue anytime there's signs of serious stress. But to your point, I think that's an extremely compelling analysis. I'll just note that there is some limit to it just given how low treasury yields are. I mean, if we just looked at retracing current spreads as a percentage of treasury to average levels, we're talking about spreads trading inside of typical bid ask for most high quality products, SSA's agencies down to AA rated corporates. So there is going to be a limit to that. And to quantify that limit, I went back and I looked at the low for long period following the global financial crisis and looked at how credit spreads traded as a percentage percentage of treasuries in those years, specifically 2011 to 2013, where we had this low for long assumption before the quote unquote taper tantrum of 2013. And unsurprisingly, during that time, we saw elevated spreads to treasuries because treasury yields were at cyclical lows, or maybe because there was heightened credit concerns given the concurrent European debt crisis, or maybe I'm saying the same thing two different ways, yields are low and spreads are high because of the European debt crisis. But either way, during that time of cyclical lows, credit spreads, the percentage of treasuries trade abnormally high. But even during that time, they averaged 113% of treasury yields and touched as low as about 70%. That argues for in the current environment, IG index spreads trading as low as 80 basis points compared to their current levels of 130. So as much as 50 basis points in additional spread narrowing, and obviously that would bring us down to lower than pre-pandemic levels on IG spreads. I would note it wouldn't be the lowest of all time. The IG index did trade narrower in the 90s, but also that was a much different index with a duration of two full years shorter. So not necessarily apples to apples. So you could make the argument that we'd have IG index spreads at all-time lows, and that would apply to all credit products given how low treasury yields are. Now, I think there are two primary arguments against this analysis, and the first is volatility. Yeah, well, I think that's the obvious threat to credit spreads at this point in the cycle is if we saw a resurgence in volatility, credit spreads would almost necessarily move wider. And I think that's one of the main reasons we've seen spreads stall out a little bit is that there's an expectation that we're not going to see volatility be so muted in the medium term. Of course, if and when we do see an effective COVID vaccine, I think that is when you could see expectations for volatility start to really subside. And that could be the catalyst for spreads trading at these narrow levels like you talked about. I think the other threat to this analysis is inflation. And now we haven't seen inflation set sustainably above the Fed's 2% objective in this cycle. But recently, we've seen inflation expectations start to creep up towards that 2% level. And if we did see inflation start to move towards 2%, 2.5%, it could force the Fed to raise rates earlier than the market's expecting. And that would really change this calculus that we just talked about, about these yield ratios, if we saw treasury rates across the curve move higher. Yeah, for sure. Average credit spreads and percentage of treasuries could be restored by treasury yields just moving higher and corporate spreads moving in tandem 
without necessarily narrowing it all. But to your point, that would require inflation trading above the Fed's expectations. And I personally think it's more likely that we're going to see credit spreads continue to narrow rather than seeing Treasury yields move significantly higher based on inflation fears. And the big reason for that is some of the heavy debt loads we talked about earlier in the podcast, particularly in the corporate sector. We all know that government issuance has been historically heavy throughout the pandemic, but so too is corporate issuance. In fact, up until the 2020 COVID-19 recession, every recession that we have data for going back in history, we see a very reliable pattern, and that's that corporate leverage as a percentage of GDP falls during and following the recession. And that happens as we see corporations default. We see corporations clean up their balance sheets based off of an outlook for lower earnings, what have you. In 2020, we've seen the exact opposite. Rather than a corporate deleveraging, we've seen a massive increase in leverage and a massive increase in debt financing as companies replace earnings with debt. And that gives rise to a threat to the economy in the long term, and that threat is zombie corporations. So to begin this discussion, Dan, what is a zombie corporation? So there's no clear definition of what a zombie corporation is, but typically a zombie corporation is characterized as one with greater interest expenses over a three-year period than operating income. So we look at EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes, as a proportion of interest expenses in order to quantify how many zombie corporations there are in an economy at a given time. And right now, given the last 12 months of earnings and interest expenses, we estimate that about 20% of corporate bond issuers in the U.S. dollar market could be characterized as zombie corporations. And that number may fall as earnings come back, but it's an extremely important statistic to throw out. And also, I should say that it's not just from the pandemic that we have such a high share of quote-unquote zombie corporations. Going into the pandemic, as much as one in seven met that definition, or 13%. So we've increased significantly in just a short amount of time. But this was already a problem going into the pandemic. And one of the main reasons that we were concerned about credit spreads in 2020 and calling for a recession, it turned out that recession came from COVID-19. Obviously, we didn't foresee that. But the point is, there were already unhealthy metrics in the corporate market that we were concerned about. And those metrics have only gotten worse. And this is important if we think about the impact that zombie corporations have on an economy in the long run. I mean, for example, before the year 2000, there really were no zombie corporations. We started to see the first evidence of zombie corporations pop up around the aggressive central bank response to the dot-com bubble burst. And then they started to come off a little bit. And then we had the global financial crisis in 2008, where you see a big increase in zombie corporations, which continued to grow over the next decade, where we had very accommodative monetary policy for really the whole decade, which is a perfect breeding ground for zombie corporations that stay in business by simply issuing debt and trudging along. And so that's why there were so many zombie corporations headed into the pandemic, and now we have so many coming out. And the problem from an economic theory perspective is that zombie corporations have the potential to hamstring an economy. Right. So as the Fed lowers the cost that is required to service corporate debt, the minimum profitability threshold for a corporation to remain in business also falls. And so it's not hard to see how this stifles innovation, and it can divert economic resources away from potentially newer and more economically viable ventures, such as new corporations that are potentially more profitable than a longstanding corporation that's in a more mature part of the business cycle. So eventually, one of two things is going to happen. Either interest rates will eventually rise, and with them, debt service costs, and this would likely result in the wipeout of a lot of these zombie corporations. Now, this would represent some real short-term economic pain for 
the economy broadly and for many consumers, but it's become somewhat apparent that the Fed is not going to tolerate such large bankruptcies. I'll take that a step further and, and note, in addition to the point you made about how zombie corporations can't support higher rates, they also can't really support paying their employees more. They can't take on more expense, whether it's debt service or employees. So this means they can't really raise their employees' wages. So we have less wage inflation, which contributes to less inflation, which contributes to lower rates. Just the important point being here that zombie corporations siphon away the ability for the Fed to raise rates, particularly to your point, where if we start to see unemployment creep up, the Fed has demonstrated that they have no tolerance for that. They will stop hiking rates. They will embark on another accommodation cycle if they need to in order to maximize employment rate. And we're not pointing this out to say that the Fed has done anything wrong or criticized the Fed, but just that the heavy degree of zombie corporations, which continues to grow each time the Fed bails out the economy and tries to avoid the worst depths of the recession, we see more and more zombies, which just means we're going to see low GDP, low inflation, and very low credit spreads as we have a yield grab environment with heavy central bank accommodation and a fight for those investment assets seeking safety and seeking return. And Dan, also as a corollary and something that's important for investment grade bond investors, we would see low default rates as a byproduct of this scenario, right? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Default rates should be much lower than they otherwise would be, at least during the peak of the crisis. And I think that's a big reason why we're seeing credit spreads trading where they are right now. Now, a loss of fiscal stimulus, we could see a little bit of a pickup in default rate and a little bit of an increase in credit spreads. But while we have some thought that inflation might come back, which it may not be a huge surprise given all that the global central banks have done, that we see a little bit of a pop in inflation here, to take advantage of this potential fear around increased defaults, take advantage of some thoughts that there might be inflation to add to credit spreads now ahead of next year settling into this low for long period where we think credit spreads are going to make new historical lows. Does that about sum up the way you feel as well, Dan? Yeah, I agree. I think there's a pretty clear cap on how wide investment grade credit spreads are going to trade in the near term. And so I think any weakness in this fall is a good buying opportunity as the longer term path of credit spreads likely lies narrower. And maybe we should just make the one small exception where in the very unlikely event that headlines come out that the vaccine is not effective or that the timelines surrounding a vaccine are pushed significantly into the future then maybe spread widening wouldn't be viewed as a buying opportunity. That's a very unlikely scenario, but one I think that we should at least acknowledge as possible. This concludes Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 